Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. It is the 17th of June. It's a Thursday morning. This is Mornings with Carmen. And as you know, it's been Mornings Without Carmen for quite some time. This is day nine of her vacation. It's been absolutely delightful to be with all of you during these past couple of weeks as we wake up in the morning and the sun is coming up and we fix our eyes on Jesus together again. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and tomorrow. And Carmen will be back in the host chair on Monday morning. I have to admit that after yesterday's show, I'm still recovering from this theological conversation about <sighs> fudge. And Paul, you're our first guest. You were emailing Ben Johnson last night, and Ben clearly shares your um, less than biblical Learned point of view. <laughs> scriptural and theological con- construct around fudge. Yeah, and our listeners, too, I, I admit that <laughs> clearly in the minority. I prayed and fast last night. I still haven't changed my position, but I'm good, but I'm getting close and uh, in that intellectual humility it, I love It's only mildly preach. heterodox view, but understand that um, <laughs> it, 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 it does have further theological ramifications. You really need to think this through. I am working through it. I am working through it. And getting inside, I've been in the scriptures with a friend of mine. I had a chance to be with uh, a pastoral friend of many years, and we had breakfast together this last weekend. And he clued me into Mark chapter 4, a parable that I didn't know much about. I thought it'd be a good way to start the show today as you're thinking about whatever your day is ahead and what holds, whether it's being with kids or grandkids, getting off to some kind of job, being on vacation, whatever it looks like, we are kingdom citizens and kingdom representatives. And and Mark chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 is maybe a great way to start the day. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. And my pastoral friend, when he was kind of talking me through some of this passage, because it was something he was sitting in as well, just made the point that uh, we sometimes think we have to do these really big things for God or God is looking for these transformative global events in which we enter. But the reality is, is that most of us, uh, all of us, in fact, are simply just stewards. We are like farmers. We're stewards of the seeds on behalf of the future. And the kingdom is a very fertile place, but it's not incumbent upon us to make things happen. It's incumbent upon us to simply do what's in front of us and scatter whatever kingdom seeds we need to scatter onto the ground and then we can just go to sleep. It doesn't matter whether we go to sleep or wake up. And my pastor friend was saying uh, that it's it's usually a very bad thing to go to sleep in the scriptures. But in this case, going to sleep is just that sense of peace that uh, this is not on you. It is not on us. We just faithfully steward what's been given. And so we fall asleep and then we wake up and we see that these things begin to grow even though we do not know how. And that's the beautiful intersection of God and us. It is the partnership. It is the co-conspiracy that Dallas Wheeler likes to talk about between God and human in which we shine the light of the kingdom through the power of the spirit in the world around us. So whatever you're doing today, grab that handful of kingdom seeds, scatter it on the ground, and then go ahead and faithfully just go to sleep. Trust the results to God that he will grow that. Our first guest on a Thursday morning, Ben Johnson, knows all about this. He's been faithfully scattering these kingdom seeds for quite some time, and we're going to start with some conversations around some headlines in our country. Welcome to Mornings Without Carmen.
Of course, that music welcomes Ben Johnson into the show. He's a longtime journalist. He's an observer of many of the political and social things going on in our country, writes for the Daily Wire and a lot of other outlets, as well joins us regularly on Thursday mornings. And Ben, unfortunately, I probably should wrap up this fudge conversation right now, but uh, when we were going round and round and I suggested to you via email that I am not a fudge guy, I believe the phrase that you use is you had to wash your eyes out at the heresy that I was bringing. I did. You know, fudge is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> Embrace the truth, Peter. Uh, I just keep thinking there. there's no, you know, temptation that has overtaken us. It's, it, you know, the fudge is right in that category. Just run from it, Ben. Run from it. Uh, say, you know, the, the my, my waistline would agree with you. Yeah, yeah mine too, indeed. Say, there is uh, some some pretty interesting news that has been going on with a, with a summit between the president of Russia and our president as well. These two have gotten together in a very different kind of circumstances between the two of them than between with the previous administration. And you took an interesting angle at this in terms of looking at the Russia propaganda machine. And of course, they're not alone in the propaganda machine. But I think we can learn some things in our country in terms of what we've seen over the years in in terms of media control and how people get divided up, identity politics, all of these things. It seems like Russia is about a generation ahead of us in, in doing this as effectively as they do. And I don't mean that it's good. It just means that it's effective. So kind of take us into the circumstances here. Russia is incredibly effective. In fact, they're two to three generations ahead of us. Uh, They have had the exact same MO in terms of their approach to the United States and disinformation and propaganda for at least three generations going back really to the, the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, certainly to the 1930s and 40s. You start to see that propaganda machine exert itself into U.S. media. Uh, And this isn't uh, simply myself. I want to be very clear. Former FBI director, I'm, I'm sorry, actually, the current FBI director, uh, Christopher Wray, uh, was testifying about this uh, just a few uh, few months ago. And uh, when he was discussing the uh, Russian propaganda machine, he said that uh, their entire point is to mislead, to sow discord, and ultimately undermine confidence in our democratic institutions and values. Uh, and there was another gentleman who's a, a former government intelligence agent, uh, Clint Watts, who talked about this to NPR just a few years ago, he said the Russian idea is, and this is his quote, turning every crack in our country into a chasm and pitting different racial and ethnic groups, religious groups, socioeconomic groups, Second Amendment, abortion, whatever it might be, into a place where we fight instead of being united front. Now, does that sound like America today? Or does it not sound like America today? And, of course, the leading assailant in this is the U.S. media. You can think of no group that is more committed to dividing Americans along these lines, to uh, turning every single division into uh, this bottomless chasm between us than the U.S. media. Uh, Of course, when it comes to uh, any issue where there might be a racial angle, the media are there to exacerbate tensions. If there's a difference between uh, male and female in, in pay or in representation, they will take that as though it's proof of misogyny, even though in many cases it's proof of life choice. You know, 98% of plumbers are men. That's not because the plumbing uh, profession is discriminating against women who want to be plumbers. It's because women have other ideas and they would rather do something else uh, that doesn't involve that. Uh, in this, at the same point, uh, any time that there's a difference between us on any issue, 
The media is there in, to put its claws in the middle, to divide up, to stir up trouble between Americans. And that's exactly what Russia has been after for its entire existence, going back at least, uh, again, to the 1930s, where the communist playbook was. If you said, uh, for example, and you saw this uh, as Vladimir Putin was speaking yesterday after the summit, they said, you have political prisoners. And he turned around and said, well, you have, uh, you have issues with Black Lives Matter and you're mistreating black people. And uh, you know, so you have a society that's also fundamentally corrupt and unjust. And they've been doing this since the 1930s. Uh, in fact, many of the uh, many of the original uh, uh, groups that uh, were were uh, civil rights groups uh, were were often linked uh, to the Communist Party to the to the extent that uh, uh, quite often people would join the Communist Party because they were the only ones speaking out on these issues. Thankfully, now there are uh, Christian organizations and others that dedicate themselves to uh, to pursuing even-handed justice and, uh, uh, you know, equity across the board, equality across the board. But uh, here you have these, uh, this very simple Russian tactic of dividing the United States, dividing Americans against one another, and we have fallen for it hook, line, and sinker. To me, the, the only answer to this is Jesus Christ. It's, it's the answer that we present. Uh, really, diversity works in the United States, but it only works in Christ, if everyone is a believer, if everyone believes in Jesus, then we see everyone else as a fellow child of God. Those of us who are believers see other people, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, as our fellow children of God. And we see the way that God reveals himself in the beauty of creation around us and all of its diversity. Uh, we see everyone as being fundamentally uh, children who have been created in God's image. They bear his likeness. They're here for a purpose, and they're here to serve his will in one way or another. And so in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I think, Ben, what you just said is so important in terms of how we look at one another. And, and I confess that I've maybe underestimated the sort of subtle daily impact that this sort of active, divisive, creating reality the media has done in terms of splitting this up. And of course, politicians have done this as well and, and creating all of these different identities where we no longer feel like we can share things. And I say that because I was watching a program with my kids last night that was a live event that had aired in New York City in 2002. And it was not, it was, you know, New York City coming back together. And there's this massive crowd of people. And I noted with interest, I thought, wow, look at that crowd. It is filled with all different kinds of people in terms of white and black and brown. And, and they were all sort of sharing this experience together. And I'm not suggesting 2002 was a utopia between us in terms of racial harmony. But, but there was just less angst in the air. You, could, you can feel it palpably now everywhere you go where we, ha we are starting to look at each other through the lens of skin color and making assumptions back and forth with one another. So this has really uh, been, again, an effective division among people in our states that is really different than it was maybe 15 years ago. It has, and, and certainly not for the better. You know, I think after 9-11, we, we decided that we were exactly one country. We had to come together as Americans and to defend ourselves because there was an external threat that uh, was threatening to strike the homeland. And when, when the towers fell down, it didn't matter if people were Jewish or Muslim or Christian or, or secular. We all realized that we were Americans, and we, we joined together very briefly. And that was very quickly politicized, of course. Uh, and, and of course, there were a lot of mistakes that were made by uh, the administration and so on. But it was politicized. 
And uh, as you say, the the, uh, pol- the political leaders have done a great service of making uh, their bones by turning Americans against one another based on all of these groups. And that is exactly what weakens us. It makes us liable to fall apart, makes us liable to civil war. But more importantly, uh, as we decline and fight with one another, that leaves the international stage open for autocratic powers, non-democratic powers, for Marxist powers to extend their grip around the world. And that's exactly what you're seeing, whether it's China's Belt and Road Initiative or whether it's uh, Russia's increased uh, uh, foreign profile. But uh, here at home, we are constantly at war with one another, and that's exactly what any hostile foreign power would want to the greatest force of freedom and democracy and liberty in the entire history of mankind. Yeah, certainly history shows us, Ben, that a house divided against itself cannot stand and that typically nations and empires crumble from within for a variety of reasons, whether it be decadence or whether it be internal strife, and we're seeing a lot of that going on, and I think it's incumbent upon the church to extract itself from the political scene, not 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 participate in it, but not think that politics is going to be the vehicle or mechanism that's going to bring wholeness to us. It, it's going to be from a different angle. I'll say we're going to step aside for just a minute here, Ben. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the splits that continue to go on within the political parties themselves, because once we start dividing, it seems to just sort of have no end to it, and we're seeing that within the Democratic Party right now, and that has some implications for us as believers and as people in this country, too. So stay with us. More to come with Ben Johnson. And we'll continue to talk about some of the politics of the day. Well, as he has wanted to do, Ben Johnson has redeemed himself from his uh, maybe delusional fudge uh, enjoyment because of his astute political analysis as he does plan. It's really great to, to hear just your perspective that takes us out of some of the, the ways in which we might feel a bit anxious and angst around the political scene and because when we when we see divisions begin to happen, they don't tend to end with just one division. And we see that certainly even within the history of Protestantism over the last 450, 500 years, even Martin Luther himself wanted to more reform the church and stay together than he wanted to split away from the church. But once that split began to happen and he was deemed a heretic, well, now everything was fair game and everybody can be a heretic that doesn't immediately agree 100% with us. And we're sure seeing that within the Democratic Party right now. In, in fairness, we were seeing it with the Republicans and Mitt Romney and, and some of the, the things that were going on with the Trump administration. But now we have a senator in Joe Manchin who is moderate from West Virginia, and his his very Christianity is being questioned because he is unwilling to support the the ending of the filibuster. So take us into this situation and just about how, again, divisions continue to create more divisions. It was fairly audacious, to say the least, but uh, there's a minister in North Carolina named uh, William J. Barber II, he, uh, he's been in the news quite a bit, and I'm sure uh, your listeners have seen him because uh, he's been leading a group called the Moral Mondays Movement, where uh, he would rally every Monday in uh, the capital in North Carolina against certain bills. And it was always, for example, against uh, bills that would demand that uh, abortion facilities have the same sort of uh, regulations as any other surgical facility. So he's, he's very much on the left on all of these issues. And Barber uh, has recently made headlines again because on Monday he had a rally of about two to 300 people from all over the country in front of Joe Manchin's offices in Charleston, West Virginia. And they read out what they call a letter to Senator Manchin from moral and religious leaders, uh, which says, and I quote, as a public service who professes a faith guided by love, justice, and mercy, and who has sworn a public oath to support and defend the Constitution, your public statements about the filibuster are a moral contradiction. The filibuster, as it's currently being used, is not just bad policy. It is sinful. 
<laughs> so, I, I, I'm having I, a hard I, time I, thinking about any kind of biblical passages that, that would support that point of view, Ben. Is this more about power than it is anything else? Thou shalt not filibuster. Right, yeah. right. Maybe I'm missing something in the Greek there, indeed. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to know where this would have come from, but it, it, it so clearly speaks to what you were talking about, about the never-ending divisions where everything is politicized. And ultimately, it's about the, the transvaluation of values, as Nietzsche spoke about, the transvaluation of Christian values and establishing their opposite. So here you have a man of the cloth who is in favor of abortion, uh, who is in favor of the Equality Act and so on. But when it comes to this, he has politicized his views so completely that if you disagree with him on politics, then you're a sinner. And uh, there's there's no place for that. Uh, you know, I, I actually felt uh, uh, somewhat, you were talking about uh, conviction. Uh, during the 1994 race, the head of the Democratic Party, a man named David Wilhelm, was giving a speech I happened to attend. And he was criticizing the uh, Christian coalition because they said that the Christian position was you would be in favor of the balanced budget amendment. He said, I don't think Jesus had a position on the balanced budget amendment. <laughs> and I think he was right. Jesus doesn't have a position on the filibuster either. There are a lot of things that Christians can be Christians and still have a passionate disagreement about these things. These are prudential issues. They're not moral issues. Not everything is a matter of heresy. Not everything's a matter of faith. Not everything questions the faith of another human being. And we need to walk back from that ledge and have decent conversations based on shared values that begin in assuming the good faith of the other person. Yeah, what you just said, I think, is so important in terms of recovering sort of the art of relationship in our country is, is soon, and I've said this often, that as soon as we began to moralize the other side, and, and there are some things that we need to talk about in terms of morals, whether it be issues of rights to life or LGBTQ, there are things that fall into the moral category. But there's so many things, Ben, that it strikes me that fall into philosophical differences category that then we start shouting about morality simply as a way of maybe trying to gain power and drive the other person out. And so to discern those things that are moral issues that we need to attend to versus philosophical issues that we probably should have some shared conversation about, that's really going to be the art moving forward. Well, it truly is, and I'm glad that you made that distinction because, as you say, there are some issues that are moral issues that are spoken about by the Bible and that can't be compromised upon. Uh, we simply have to stand our ground. And when we have a disagreement over something like that, if someone professes to be a Christian but disagrees on something as fundamental as that, say the right to life, then we would we would uh, begin to question their hermeneutics at, at any rate. But uh, you know, there are certain issues like abortion where the Christian position has been clear for 2,000 years. Uh, literally, the first document written outside the Bible called the Didache condemns abortion. That was written between yeah. 70 and 100 AD. So we've had a consistent position on that. Or uh, uh, sexual morality being between a man and a woman who are married for life. That's That's been our position for as far back as there's been Christianity. So uh, on those issues, we can't compromise. When it comes to things outside of that, though, to raise these other issues to that sort of a level is uh, really a level of politicizing our faith. And then uh, if you do as uh, as Barber does, which is to say that he, he elevates the filibuster to a sinful level, but then says that uh, it's not a sin to have an abortion, then you question what faith he's professing. Yeah, Ben, so well said. We appreciate just the, the analysis that I always... And look at us. We, we share a genuine and authentic kingdom love for one another, despite our profound differences on fudge. This is how we model stuff moving forward, I would suggest. And don't forget soccer. <laughs> indeed. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, thanks. You're so faithful to the program, and you bring such incredible wisdom into the midst of it. Thanks for all that you do and just the way that you're sort of scattering the seeds of the kingdom uh, daily as you go about your day. Have a great rest of the day, Ben. 
Thank you. God bless you, Peter. Yeah, you too. We'll take a short break here and some bottom of the hour news and excited for our next guest, Michael Heister, talking a little bit about the realm of the spirit in a very responsible way. It should be pretty thought provoking coming up. Well, it is going to definitely be time to put on our thinking caps in this next half an hour because we've got Dr. Michael Heiser joining the program. I had a chance to have an interview with him a couple of days ago that we're going to air for you next. He is perhaps the the preeminent theologian when it comes to matters of the realm of the spirit. He's a pretty prolific author in this area. He has written some books called Angels and Demons uh, and Supernatural. His most recent book is called The Unseen Realm. It's one of those things where it takes a bit to follow and process, and he'll give us a little invitation into what life is like in that realm in a very responsible and biblical kind of way. So you're going to want to stay with us to listen to the interview up next. Do you remember those crazy fads from the late 60s and 70s? My dad always hated my bushy sideburns and long hair, my purple bell bottoms and knee-high boots. But back in the day, I was hot stuff. (laughs) Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Just like we confounded our parents with goofy clothes and weird styles, our teens today have their own trends and fashions. And just as you don't wear the same things you did back then, your teen won't always dress this way either. So if your daughter is caught in some crazy fad, don't flip out. It doesn't mean much of anything about who she is as a person, except that she's a normal teenager. Don't make a passing fad your battlefield of wills. Relax. This too shall pass. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. Learn about Mark's upcoming events and check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. There's a ghost. There's a ghost inside of me. Not like those dreams in old bed sheets. Saying trick or Welcome back to the show. Delighted at this time to invite Dr. Michael Heiser into the program. Dr. Heiser is pretty well known for writing some books in a realm that is probably unfamiliar to many of us as Western believers in particular. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I love the conversations we've been able to have over the past uh, six months or so in different contexts and really intrigued by this sort of river in which you're swimming as you're doing your writing, including books like The Unseen Realm, supernatural demons and angels. Gee, I, I can't imagine that you have any audience for your writing at all, Michael. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's really narrow. <laughs> yeah. So how did, so what, what prompted you to get into this realm? Because it's going to, uh, imagine, be filled with controversy at a lot of different turns. So how did you decide to get into this? Yeah, what, what prompted it was something, a conversation I had as a doctoral student at uh, Wisconsin uh, that focused on Psalm 82, you know, where somebody forced me to read it in Hebrew. I was in the <laughs> Hebrew department, and and so was this other guy. And I don't know what we were talking about, but like I say in the book, the you know, first chapter of Unseen Realm, I'll never, you know, forget how the conversation ended. I, you know, it was God presiding among, you know, the gods, you know, and it, it's like, boy, that looks like a pantheon. You're like, what do I do with that? And he wasn't hostile to the faith at all. You know, it's just he'd been down this road before, and and it just took me into the into the spiritual realm. I had to figure out what in the world is going on in Psalm 82, and then that took me to this passage and that passage. It, just, it was just a rabbit hole. Uh, it was like taking the red pill, you know, to use a more, uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, contemporary, uh, you know, metaphor. But that's what did it. I, I I had almost no instruction 
in seminary and Bible college, it's not an exaggeration. I, I had one clock hour of instruction on angels and demons in five years in Bible college and seminary. So you, you just figure it can't be that important if you know, otherwise they'd spend more time on it. But now it's like, I, I, you know, you just, you get into it and you start to read scripture like an ancient person would. And it's just everywhere. You can't unsee it. As I've been reading a little bit of your work, Michael, too, and taking a bit of that red pill of the matrix myself down into that rabbit hole, I, I find myself wondering about the worldview of the authors of Scripture that maybe sometimes as 21st century believers, we tend to teach the Scriptures as, or, or, or think of the Scriptures as teaching theology or moral codes, and maybe they're doing some of that. But at, at some point, it seems that we've lost the idea that the authors of Scripture would have been very comfortable and familiar with, with the world of the supernatural. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, I, I don't think—I often get asked, why in the world—I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've never heard the stuff in your book. You know, and and I tell people, look, it's not a sinister thing. It's not that you're being obstructed or, you know, it's not like secret knowledge that you're not supposed to have. It's not, a, it's not that conspiratorial kind of thing. It just is what it is, you know, that we're modern. We do look at the world a different way. We as Christians think we're we're okay with the supernatural, but we actually are selectively okay. You know, we want the virgin birth and the resurrection and the incarnation and salvation itself, all these concepts. But we, you know, we, we either don't see a lot of the other stuff because we don't have eyes to see it because we're not ancient people, or we have this nagging sensitivity to, well, if I believe that, you know, my my neighbor or my the person sitting next to me in church will think I'm weird. <laughs> So we, it's just a modern reflex. It's just sort of who we are, uh, and, and that, that becomes a filter for us. And so what I try to do in the book is I try to you know, convince people that, look, if, if you say you want to interpret Scripture in context, this is the context. It, it's, it's the worldview of the ancient person. The, the, the biblical writers God selected to write what we call the Bible. They were ancient people. They had a, a, a different worldview than ours. And they were writing to people that had their worldview, not ours. So if you really want to understand a lot of the layers of Scripture and a lot of strange passages, and even passages that aren't strange but that are somehow linked to some of this other you know, strangeness, um, you, you have to be able to get over this hurdle. You have to read it through ancient eyes. And you're not going to find a lot of stuff that you're going to run into in creeds and confessions and whatnot. But it's okay because it's Scripture. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it, it's okay to let the Bible like say what it says. You know, boy, can I really let it mean what it says there? You know, yes, you can. You can, and it just it's going to open up Scripture to you in wonderful ways that you never really you know had before. One of the phrases that I've lifted from you recently is the phrase Deuteronomy 32 worldview. So when you're talking about worldview, maybe let's get into some of the specifics of this briefly for the listeners and take us into Deuteronomy 32. I confess I had absolutely no familiarity with that book of the Bible until you brought it up. But what are you referencing when you talk about a Deuteronomy 32 worldview? Yeah, I'm referencing Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which is a, a passage, again, that most of our English translations will will essentially deflect us away from, because most of our English translations are not using the Dead Sea Scrolls in this verse and really anywhere else. But some of the, the more recent ones do, like ESV and NLT and NRSV. And the verse says, when the Most High gave to the nations, this is ESV, when he gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples. Now, again, that's a reference to what happens at the Tower of Babel. You know, when humanity is separated out, 
we get the list of nations in Genesis 10. So when God fixed the borders of the people, he did so according to the number of the sons of God. Now that's a phrase that elsewhere refers to supernatural beings. Verse 9 says, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Now there, this is chapter 32. There are other passages in Deuteronomy that sort of lead up to this or contribute to it in some way. And, and the general idea is that when God judged humanity at Babel and separated them out, confusing their languages and all that, he assigned the nations, the scripture elsewhere in Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 29, uses allotment language, that the nations are allotted to these other supernatural beings, members of the heavenly host, who we learn in Psalm 82 eventually become corrupt and are sentenced to die. Uh, by God. These are, this is where Daniel gets his theology, the princes of you know, Persia and Greece, supernatural princes over nations. It's also where Paul gets his, his geographical vocabulary for cosmic darkness, you know, principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions. They're all terms of geographical dominion. This is where it goes back to, but we never even see it if we're not reading a translation that doesn't allow the Dead Sea Scrolls to be present in the translation. So that it leads to all sorts of things. Scholars refer to it as cosmic geography, that Yahweh is associated with Israel, Israel with Yahweh. This is his turf. This is his domain. That means every other nation in the Old Testament world is under dominion of something else, some other supernatural being that is now adversarial and hostile to God and his people. It, this is the root of what we would call later spiritual warfare. And the passage informs lots of you know, odd, strange things in the Old Testament. Why does Naaman ask for dirt? He's from Syria. But he, he knows that Yahweh is the God of all gods, and I will sacrifice to no other. He wants to take dirt back from Israel to his home in Syria so that he's, he's attached to holy ground. You know, that's just one example. There are, there are a bunch of them. But that's the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, that the nations are enslaved un, under these gods. And, and the biblical writers thought the gods were real, supernatural beings, you know, just, you know, we, we, we might think of them as demons that might make it easier to sort of digest. But Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32 in 1 Corinthians 10, 21 and 22, when he's talking about not having fellowship with demons. I mean, he, he considered these beings real. And that's just something we don't really think this way unless we're sort of, you know, the charismatic movement had, this is a, a, a sort of a, 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 an easier adjustment in their thinking. Uh, but, you know, typically if you're not in the charismatic movement, you don't have any sense of this. So I, I, I like to think I'm a help to the charismatics that, no, we don't have demons under every rock, but we do have this root mm -hmm. idea. And we need to let the Bible sort of flesh it out for us, not, you know, experience or, you know, some something else that somebody might tell us. And scripture does have this in it and it does address it. It does articulate it. So that that's what the Deuteronomy 32 worldview is. and It, it bleeds into the Great Commission. It bleeds into the, the return of the Lord because Paul links the, quote, fullness of the Gentiles with the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord. You know, this idea that the Gentile nations are brought back into relationship with the true God of Israel. It, it has a dramatic effect on a number of theological ideas that are familiar to people. Yeah, I love that, uh, Michael. We're going to take a short break here and come back and dive into this a little bit even more deeply as you sort of set the foundation for the context of what it might mean moving forward as the church to kind of grow in our ability to navigate the spiritual realm. So more to come next here on Mornings Without Carmen.
Welcome back to the show. We're having an engaging conversation with Dr. Michael Heiser about the unseen realm and how to navigate that from a scriptural worldview. And one of the things that's so compelling to me, Michael, when you sort of break open the Bible and these passages that are almost wholly unfamiliar to me as well, somebody who went through seminary, as you did, and and spent about that same hour of time on the realm uh, of the angelic or the demonic, and, and it seemed like sort of this realm to stay away from. But so much scripture is understood through this lens. And I'm curious if I was to ask you the question of what it might mean to alongside of raising our kids, maybe with the book of Romans, that we raise our kids with Deuteronomy 32 as a worldview, that we're not talking about one versus the other. But sometimes it seems to me we treat some parts of scripture as more God-breathed than others while maybe mm-hmm. ignoring the other parts of it. But do, do you see a, maybe a helpful corrective for for the church, for the people of faith, if they can be willing to engage in these conversations in responsible ways? Yeah, I, I think really, and I can only speak for myself here, you know, and, and it's not that I was unaware of some of the things I'll say here, but but it, th- this this whole Deuteronomy 32 thing really brought a couple of things home. Um, you know, one is that if you get a sense of, of cosmic geography, again, this this notion that there's Israel against the nations, God against the gods, and, and it, it, this is real, okay, that this, this has real spiritual impact, you begin to look at... Um, other people outside the believing community, I, I think differently. Why do this is the Old Testament explanation for why the other nations have pantheons, why they have other gods, and and really why they make you know images, why they make idols? Because the idol, the image is is designed to both fix the deity to a geographical region, you know, to attract it, and then to barter with it, have a relationship with it, so on and so forth. And this is precisely why. Israel doesn't do this because Yahweh will not be localized and tamed. And he doesn't need to be because every human being is his imager. And when, when you start to realize that these people are trapped, I mean, God wants them in his family, that they, he looks at the nations. He doesn't, yes, he judges them at Babel. Yes, he, he assigns them to these other, you know, lesser celestial beings. And, and yes, that whole situation becomes corrupt. So now we've got humanity fragmented and enslaved, you know, to these other gods. But when he does so, he actually in the in verse nine, the Lord's portion is his people. In the very next, the very next act in the biblical story is God calling Abram, and when he calls Abram, he tells Abram, "Look, it's going to be through you and your seed that all these nations that I've just judged, that I've just essentially divorced, that they are ultimately going to be blessed. They're going to be brought back into the family." Because why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just say, "Well, forget them"? It's because they are human beings. They are his imagers just as much as, as the Israelites are, but they are estranged. They are under, you know, the, the, the power of, of these other beings. They're blind, okay? They, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're captives. And so, again, none of that's new, but, but you see sort of the Old Testament roots of it and how we should look at, at people who are not believers, and honestly, how we should look at people from other nations, you know, i.e. other races. Everyone is God's imager. They, God wants them in their family. Humanity was created to be fit for sacred space. This should be the most normal thing in the world, to have people of all you know, stripes with the Lord in his presence. But because of these rebellions, both supernatural and human, of course, there's, there's both involved here with the Babel incident, there are all these obstacles to it. But God wants this to happen. So that, again, gets looped back into the, the Great Commission. So there's how do we look at people? people who are lost, especially. And how does this factor into what we're supposed to be doing? 
And again, Paul links the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the judgment of these, the final judgment of these beings, okay, the, the, these gods, they're going to be destroyed with, again, this Deuteronomy 32 thing. Paul, in a half a dozen passages, when Paul's talking about the resurrection, and Peter does this once in 1 Peter 3, he links the concept of the resurrection not with just, oh, I get a new body. You know, I don't have to go on diets anymore. You know, <laughs> just, <laughs> you know it's, 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 not, it's more than personal. He links it to the nullification, the stripping away of the authority of the gods of the nations. You know, because Christ rose, he ascends to the Father. He is at the seat of power once again, like he was before. And this is why in the Great Commission, Jesus says, all power, all authority, exousia, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay, so now this begins the process of reclaiming all that has been lost, mm. all that has been, you know, fragmented. It's this restorative kind of thing. And when God looks at the situation and says, now I have gathered from the nations all those that I want. Now it's time for the awakening of Israel. This is Romans 9, it's Romans 11, the fullness of the Gentiles. It's Israel's awakening the return of the Lord, and then the end will come. You know, it, it, all these things are, are linked. And so when I realized that, I thought, because I get the question a lot, you know, do the demons think they can win? Well, it depends how you define winning. If, they, if you ask, do they think they can kill God? Well, obviously not. That's stupid. They're not, they're not idiots. But if you think, well, if winning means not having the Great Commission come to pass, slowing it down, impeding it, making the church worldly, distracting the church. Yeah, they do think they can do that. They do think they can get away with that and forestall their own, their own annihilation. And frankly, they're doing a pretty decent job of it. So all of these things that are familiar to us as Christians, you know, Great Commission, evangelism, you know, looking at, at people at, at, you know, for what they are, you know, created in the image of God, all these thoughts are actually connected, and so that, that's what I find missing a lot in, in, with, with people who really care about Scripture. We have people in every church, you know, that, that have lots of Bible knowledge, but they have data points in there. They don't have any framework for it. They can't see the interconnectivity of it, and especially as it relates to supernatural, you know, the, the quote-unquote weird passages. Hey, they're connected to it, too. As things play out on earth, things are playing out in the spiritual world. That these things are, are were created and, and linked from the very beginning in Genesis one to have this symbiotic relationship, and and, and we sort of miss that. And mm. as moderns, we don't we don't just miss it; we we sort of dismiss it or don't want to look at it. And that's a mistake. Yeah, that it is a mistake. I just uh, you're, you're taking us down into that rabbit hole, the reference of the movie The Matrix and and the red pill swallowing that. But I, I think it's incredibly important, Michael, for moving forward as the church to get our head around that. If you're listening this morning, I can't recommend highly enough picking up one of the books, whether it's the unseen realm, the supernatural demons or angels, for those of us that maybe feel a bit hesitant to enter into that realm, it's, it's incredibly responsible exegetical work on the biblical text. It takes a little bit to get through, but it's entirely worth it. Dr. Heiser, thanks so much for joining us this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Just an incredibly important move looking forward. Yep, thank you. We'll take a short break and preview what's coming up next on Mornings Without Carmen.
Wow, great stuff from Dr. Michael Heiser there. Time to maybe crawl our way back up out of the rabbit hole down which he took us for that short 16 minutes. And uh, that's a that's a pretty big topic, a pretty heady topic to try to engage with early mornings like this. But a considerably important one, too, as I suggested throughout that interview. I know we've had some listeners text in looking for copies of the book in terms of what, what he's writing about. Again, some of the books that he's released in the last 10 years or so include the title Demons, include the title Angels, uh, Supernatural is another one of the books that he has written, and Unseen Realm as well. And uh, just one of those topics we had a, a listener text in, too. I think it's really helpful to know that in the next generation, they are watching so many shows that do bring in the supernatural. I know mm-hmm. that one, one of the most popular shows of the last 10 or so years has been exactly that name. Supernatural. Supernatural. Yeah. 16 seasons. And, and young people... Are, are watching it in droves. And, and so to have somebody that can counteract some of the messages of the show, but there's there, there's so much uh, intrigue in, in that field. And Michael does such a good job getting us into it, even though woo, it, it can be a lot to try to figure out what he's saying there. But Paul, I, I often think the, the Bible has 33,000 verses, I want to say, somewhere in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. give or take 10%. And, and I think I could probably talk faithfully and intelligently about maybe 1,500, maybe 2,000 passages of Scripture, know some of the Greek and the Hebrew and the context and all of that. That represents somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to 4% of Scripture. And so Michael's <laughs> yeah. last point that he was making is that so many of us in our, in our desire and in our authentic pursuit of the Scriptures, we really do want to know them. But to study these kinds of things is so incredibly important. To, to see some of the interconnections between them, we can under, even better understand the events of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, the early church, the writings of Paul, all of these things. When he starts talking about Deuteronomy 32 worldview and what's going <laughs> yeah. on in the Psalms and all of these things, yeah. it really just helps pull it together. But it isn't easy work to do that. No, and I'll be honest. I mean, when we first started doing the interview, it's like, where is he going with it? I'm right. not, oh, as he got into it and explaining, it's like, oh, now I see what he's talking. It just started putting the pieces together. Yeah, I asked him off the air at one point. Uh, I said, so what would it be like if we raised our kids and we taught them Deuteronomy 32 as much as we taught them maybe some of the passages in Romans that are so familiar? And mm-hmm. this is not an either or conversation, but it just it's made me end, think. Yeah. When Paul talks to Timothy and he says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for training and rebuking and correcting and righteousness in that famous passage, Paul at that time is referring to the Old Testament Mm -hmm. because the New Testament had not been fully canonized yet. It was not until the fourth century that we see the books that we know, some 29 books of the New Testament before they were... 27, I'm sorry, 27. 27, 27 yeah, well, I was including some of the Apocrypha, apparently. No, there. 27 no, no. books, 39, yeah, in, in the old. How many would, states are there now? Well, no, no. <laughs> I'm well out of my wheelhouse there. <laughs> but those 27 books, they weren't they weren't put together. And so there is real use to going back into the Old Testament and seeing some of the themes. So appreciate that. Up next here, as we start the second hour, we'll have a conversation on fatherhood with Father's Day coming up this weekend. Stay with us for hour two of Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.